This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Hi, I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center, and it's my privilege to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. For about the last decade or so, a variety of experiments and innovations have been taking place around what might be called the online church, church service and church-related activities taking place virtually. But when the COVID-19 pandemic hit in early 2020, uh, what had been a phenomenon on the fringes of the church suddenly became mainstream virtually overnight. Uh, what have what Christians learned now that they've sort of been forced to be online? To help us answer some of those questions, we've brought four thought leaders together who have quite a bit of experience in this area. Uh, D- Dr. John Dyer, Dean of Enrollment Services and Distance Education at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Jonathan Armstrong, Professor of Bible and Theology at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, Leo Strong, who is Director of VR Mission, which specializes in virtual reality that's geared toward expanding uh, the Christ and His Kingdom. And then Dr. Daryl Bach, no stranger to the Table podcast, as one of the founding hosts. He's my colleague at the Hendricks Center as Executive Director for Cultural Engagement and uh, Gentlemen, I want to thank all of you for being with us today. Glad to be with you. Thank you, Bill. It's good Before to be here. Before we get into the guts of, of trying to disciple Christ followers uh, online, let me ask you the, to speak into the question that I just raised. What, what have churches learned, if anything, about working with people virtually, uh, particularly once the pandemic hit? What have, what have you seen? What's working? What's not working? So who goes first? I, I think we're learning a couple things. One of the first things that we're learning is that we can no longer avoid the issue of how churches convene. Can we convene online? What parts of churches can operate online? The, the question is now pretty unavoidable. And we're also learning that in-person communication is definitively different than online communication. Probably that's not going to change even as online communication gets richer. There's something unique about in-person communication. And I think we're also learning as a community that prayer is rock and roll online. Prayer converts really well to online media. Excellent. John, you're, you're certainly a longtime student of, of you know, this whole tech, techno, technology experience. What have you noticed? Uh, what trends are you seeing? Yeah, I think we're seeing that that there's a, a greater fluidity between moving online and offline, and that we've always kind of been doing this to some extent. So we we maybe come to a physical gathering on Sunday, but all throughout the week we're you now we're emailing, we're calling, we might be doing chats, those kinds of things, and just those two ninety minute things right on the end. Those are the, those are those in person ones. Um, and when those went away, I think we also saw more opportunities throughout the week to connect. So I think when we come out, you know, churches will think of themselves as a little bit more hybrid. That that in person is a vital. Uh, absolutely important part of what we do. 
but there may be a variety of different kinds of, of in-person things. So the, the thousand-person thing may not happen as often or in as big of numbers. Um, I think some of the churches that maybe had, maybe they were 85% in-person and 15% online, they're flipped right now, and I don't think they're going to flip right back. It's going to take a long time, and there may be some equilibrium happening. Um, but I think that, that taking advantage of that will be the big thing, of figuring out how do we do a, a mix of these. So you see terms like hybrid church turn, uh, thrown out there to kind of describe this new world. So it's not online versus is offline. It's this kind of sort of mixture of different technologies and communication methods. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. You've got the um, our numbers at, at the church that I'm at are for every person who's in the room right now, there are two online. Hmm. And so, um, uh, so you've got that. I think the other challenge is that churches are discovering that it isn't effective to be online simply to record what's happening in the room. That the media is sufficiently different that in order to have an effective experience with the person who's online, you've got to have a different kind of experience that feeds into the medium that you're using. And so that, that I think, is a challenge for churches, not simply to just reproduce what they've been doing and just send that online live streamed, but to think through how do we customize what we do so that the goal that we have in taking people's time is utilized well. So I think that's another challenge the church's faces on face on the other end when we get back to what will be the new normal as opposed to the way things were you you reminded me that uh, a year or so ago uh, at the seminary uh, we had one of our most distinguished graduates andy stanley spend an evening with the faculty and after dinner we were able to ask him questions and people asked him about what they had already at that point been trying to do online and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he said that they had, through various analytics and tracking that they had done, that they discovered uh, that on any given weekend, upwards to 20,000 people were dialing into the worship service um, virtually, in addition to whoever was there in the auditorium, the big room. And he made the point that uh, for many of the parishioners there, they've discovered that unless you uh, need to drop your child off for one of the children's or youth ministries, or you uh, have a meeting that requires being at the church for some reason, that for literally thousands of people, there was no sort of physical need for them necessarily to be in person on campus. And that was, that was long before COVID ever hit. And I'm sure many, many large churches, mega churches, uh, had experienced that same dynamic. That's correct. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's an interesting observation. And and of course, I think what COVID has done is, is to prove and, and deliver that back in spades. I want to make an observation, people who are watching on the screen and see this uh, an, a non-animated figure at the bottom, uh, that this is a real person who's behind this, uh, yes, Leo Strong. And, and Leo, why don't you tell them a little bit about what you do? so yeah. they can understand why you are presenting yourself in such a wonderful fashion. <laughs> I'd love today. to. I'd love you. Thank, th- thank you, Dr. Bach. Yeah, well, I wanted to hop in really quickly and just add into what you were saying, Dr. Bach, about um, it's there's a phrase that's kind of stuck with me, um, being in leadership in tech with, with Kingdom Work, and it's that the medium has a message. Um, I think that uh, we've discussed how different forms of of digital medium, right? Um, media essentially 
have have different messages to them, um, different capabilities that that are lent toward um, different outcomes, right? And so, I think what's exciting for me working in VR is that it's a different type of medium, um, and it, it lends itself to different types of things. And as um, churches are sort sort of being pushed into uh, the online and digital worlds, they're they're finding that there are these differences and these tools that could be used. Um, for um, different things like worship and prayer and discipleship and, and meeting, um, the delivering of content, things like that. So that's one thing that I've seen be a change is that people are sort of becoming aware of more now um, uh, that that's, you know, technology that's already existed. Um, and then also, I guess to speak to the nature of my presence on this call being a little bit more two-dimensional, um, that the whole idea of in-person public gathering for church is sort of an idea that's privileged to the West and and, and not to different geographies um, that I'm currently working in. And so the church at large, the big seat church, um, doesn't have the availability in certain geographies to be meeting in person and to be having public worship. Um, and survive. And, sur- and, and to be able to do that, survive essentially. And so partly why uh, my work in, in those places is, um, leads to sort of a, uh, I guess, my covert appearance here on the, on the table uh, and, and just the candor that I need to have with keeping identity in the work that I do somewhat private. Um, but also that that's true of, of a lot of users um, in VR who want to have conversations, um, gospel-centric conversations in these, in these platforms that even publicly... Um, on, on Zoom and, and in virtual reality, your public identity somewhat is at stake. And so the ability to be able to sort of remotely log in, and, and I know I have communities of friends and of missionaries and of locals in um, sort of international locations who, who log into my hometown's church uh, live stream, right? Um, and, and they're a part of Western American church group, podcast all of their sermons online. And so for a lot of people around the world it is the only way and this isn't news to them um you know having to move online they've just found the churches that have sort of done it ahead of time um and i think that speaks to what uh, you and bill were saying about the growth that we've seen in that digital community because um a lot of that growth with the leaders that i've spoken to is sort of outside of the region that they're a part of so it's, it's not their congregants transitioning back into their homes on sunday morning and just live streaming with a cup of coffee with the kids around the table they're still in attendance. The 20,000 we're talking about are in South America, are in Eastern Asia, are in the Middle East, and they're logging in because of the availability of that media. So I think that's what I have to speak to, and um, I'll sort of leave, leave it at that. It's fascinating. So, the, so the, the, the internet and the virtual technology truly, talk about globalization, it has opened up the space Mm. to anybody who can dial in mm. anywhere. Yeah, definitely. And part of, I mean, part of the uh, opportunity that uh, me as a digital native, I, I don't know if you can tell by the facial hair and uh, avatar <laughs> structure there, <laughs> but definitely millennial uh, generation, um, young entrepreneur. What, yeah, what you I look realized, digital through and through to me. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, what I realize is that there's a really unique opportunity with the, um, the adoption of these new technologies and the way that the world is going and a lot of the younger generations being native to those platforms. So there's, there's sort of that opportunity, but then there's also the opportunity where 
because of the remote connectability, because of then the availability of being able to share uh, digital content and even have, in, in my case, social interaction at a very presence-based, more personal level in virtual reality, all accompanied by sort of this pseudo-anonymity, this semi-anonymity that's allowed and afforded to me being able to put a digital placard in front of my face and keep my identity private, um, keep, you know, put an avatar around um, my identity, put sort of a, a, we have a lot of people who log into, um, who, who do work in this industry for the kingdom, have a completely separate um, avatar, almost gamer tag type name. Um, so they're, they're identified with but their public identity in places like the Middle East wouldn't be compromised for that reason. So it now sort of affords a little bit more um, attendance and participation to those people. Well, now let me, let me, this is a great point in our conversation to kind of go ahead and uh, talk about a theological uh, 2000 pound elephant that has been pushed to the fore by this whole thing. And it's, it's in large measure, at least as I observe it, it's a, it's a generational thing it's really an issue of ecclesiology and of course everybody jumps to hebrews 10 and you know the 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 writer says let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds and then not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and so that kind of presses this question um you know clearly the writer could not have envisioned uh the online virtual technologies that we have today even even things like the telephone or whatever but th they raise the question how much of what we call church in a sense requires physical presence and if none is required then then the question is what what's the rationale to continue meeting in person surely a group of theologians will have fun i'll, de I'll defer <laughs> well let me let me let me start off by giving the flip side which is where two or three are gathered in my presence there i am in the midst or um paul writing to uh to a church far distant than where he is physically speaking about being present spiritually with them even though he's physically absent with them um to what extent is that a gathering is what extent is that a meeting and then you layer on top of it the technology, which allows us, at least four out of five of us, to see our faces, okay, with the fifth one being a human being behind an animation, if you will. Um, you know, are, are, we, are we gathered or not? I mean, that, that's the sub-question that's underneath. And what are the benefits and limitations of that particular way of meeting together and being side-by-side? -side? That, that ultimately is the theological question. And I think what technology has done is it pushes the borders of what we thought previously had been possible. Um, and we've gone through this iteration every time a new level of technology has been introduced, whether we think about radio or television or uh, digital recording, you know, and now live stream and then virtual, and then who knows what's coming next, you know, with AI, et cetera. We go through this every step of the way, and um, and the church has to um, think through and 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 wrestle with what these new media mean uh, for us. So that's that's my response: is that God is in every space, and God is with us no matter where we are. We're connected to Him 
whatever's happening. My joke about this COVID area has been God's been zooming for a long time. Hmm. And so in that sense, you know, we're, we're always engaged with him and he's always engaged with us. I so appreciated working with Dr. Bach in this book project that we just completed together, Virtual Reality Church Pitfalls and Possibilities, and admire deeply Dr. Bach's willingness to go deep into this rabbit hole and explore this whole topic, something I could find very few collaborators who are willing to do, so I really appreciate that. And I think that basic posture has to be right. We have to try, we have to experiment, we have to enter into that conversation and just see what what is actually effective and what really works. One of the very interesting things taking place is our culture is becoming generally aware of virtual reality, but still many of us have not uh, tested it. And so theoretically, when we think about virtual reality, oh, it sounds like a perfect way to meet online. Uh, the reality of virtual reality is quite different than what it theoretically could be. The reality of virtual reality is usually frustrating. Most of our interactions with technology can be frustrating from time to time, and VR, like any other human technology, is deeply flawed, very imperfect, and will, will serve us only for some, some purpose as well. But I think entering into that and testing it is right, and I think that churches will discover certain types of meetings that may work equivalently as well or better in VR, but we'll still have parts of our community function that really ought to be conducted in person, and I think we'll feel those differences out. Yeah, having, having read Yale's book, um, I, I really appreciate it. I can't wait for it to come out. I mean, it really does some great technology work in general, some theological work, and some real specific work on the VR space. Um, but Bill, to go back to your general question of, you know, can you do church online? How much of it needs to be physical? Um, I don't know if I can answer that in, like, in a really quick way, but I think some of the ways that I've enjoyed, uh, the, the ways the questions have changed over time is that it used to sort of be asked of, um, is this real or is, is online community real community? And I, th I think maybe the pandemic's helped us do away with that question because I think we know that what we're doing right now is in some sense real. Um, I think another one that I like to get rid of is, you know, we sometimes say that online is just disembodied. And the reality is, is that all of us are embodied right now where we're sitting. We're in chairs. And those of you who are listening, you're in a car or you're running or you're doing something, you're embodied, but you're, but all of us are embodied in, in slightly different ways. And these technologies are mediating them in the, the language that uh, Leo used. And I think we want to be attentive to that and not just use easy terms like real or unreal, embodied or disembodied, but to be thinking through what is this doing to us. And then on the theological side, I like that you know Daryl kind of went back and, and used these uh, these these passages about Paul and Jesus. And I think one of the other categories that's been around for a long time is that when Paul uses that term church, um, sometimes he uses it for a local gathering. He'll say the church in a house or the church in a region. And other times it seems like it's everybody, all Christians. And so one of those clever ways of saying it might be that um, a local church is when people choose to gather in some physical space. And the universal church is everybody whom God has gathered in some way as that's all of us. And what I like to think of is, is that, you know, the, the local church is that embodied thing in a close place, but the universal church is often brought together by technology. So Paul often talks about how his letters, you know, worked with the Corinthians, and sometimes it made them mad, and sometimes it made them happy. Um, and the, at the end of John's letters, he'll say, you know, there's things I want to do with you face-to-face, -face, and other things that I felt like were important to write down. 
So you're beginning to think, they're beginning to think through these different media and thinking, how can each of these local churches use technology to sort of bring the body of Christ or, or the universal church together? So I think we want to be thinking about those and thinking through where are those pros and cons. Um, and then I think also we probably want to avoid thinking about, um, you know, thinking purely in terms of exceptions, right? I think we want to be aware of those things, um, but then not, may, not maybe make those be universal for everything so we can think through, what do I have available to me and what has God called me to do in the place where I am? I yeah, certainly want to keep exceptions, this John. I'm just curious. What are those exceptions? What do you have in mind when you say that? Well, I think this would be a great time to turn it over to, to Leo, just because I think mm-hmm. he's working in places of, of security um, and health where, where someone may not actually be able to do some of the other choices that we have. So when someone has kind of the full range of options, that's sort of different than if somebody may, may not be able to go somewhere for a particular reason. And I think we're all experiencing one gigantic exception this year right now. And I think that's driving a lot of our thoughts. In a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, did you have anything that you wanted to tag in on just there? Well, I wanted to make sure that we we you know stayed with with the topic of the online church, but uh, I would make an observation that that I think is germane to this part of the conversation. It seems to me there's two huge tools that that the church has that the pandemic has somewhat neutered. Um, one is hospitality, and the other is the power of presence. And, you know, when you talked about, you know, we're embodied creatures, I I think what I'm hearing here is what we're, what we've learned is that, um, you know, virtual church, it's okay. You know, Jesus is there. We we can worship together. God can work through that. You know, okay, that's permissible. And, and in some cases, maybe, maybe even, even preferable and, and necessary. But that doesn't mean that the pendulum swings the other way and says, oh, well, in that case, we, we don't ever really need to go back to a physical mm-hmm. gathering of, with other believers, as, as is the habit of some. No, there's, there's something about the power of presence. Um, Daryl, Jonathan, John, you know, we're the, the four of us, uh, Leo, I'm not as aware of your situation, but we're all part of a academic institutions. And we, we've seen the difference between an online experience of teaching and that residential program. And they're, very, they're, they're different. They're, they're, they're definitely different. And uh, that residential in-person touch with another person, mm-hmm. a teacher, a student, there's something about that that, that is truly irreplaceable, um, not, notwithstanding the, the realities that, that many Christians, they, they simply can't for their own safety you know, gather that we understand, and and we have ways to work around that. But then that doesn't swing swing that pendulum the other direction. Yeah, right. No, I I completely and wholeheartedly agree. Um, I love that we can explore. I, I mean, to to um, Jonathan's point, um, I think by nature I'm an explorer and a little bit of a challenger and. What I've realized is the opportunity in the, in the technology that's been sort of presented to me um, in, in the, the way that it's been presented um, and sort of the cross-cultural understanding that I have of like the big C church and um, my travels and, and sort of missionary background in um, certain parts of the world. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree that it is not, it is not necessary. Um, it is, it, it, there are certain use cases that deem it somewhat more necessary for really certain expressions, right? Um, And I think one of the, I'll note this quickly, 
when I'm in the conversation with that believer abroad and I'm asking, you know, how theological or how sound is the expression of discipleship as it pertains to really being allowed in the church or involved in the church? And this believer says, what do you mean allowed in the church? In what, like where, at what time? What church are you talking about? Oh, the Sunday morning church, Um, the big building church. Oh, okay. Well, that helps me understand. And there's almost this immediate distinction that has to be made for them because so many places in the world, that's just not a reality in, in the way that they even conceptualize church. So when they think of gathering in VR, and it's funny that you use the word presence and the sense of presence, it's actually somewhat of an industry term that we use that we want to maintain in virtual reality, a sense of embodied, um, almost augmented embodied presence that you have with another character, with another person in that space, that really it's an intermediate step between the fully 2D, like I don't have much of a sense of presence here with you, especially with my photo in front of me, um, where I'd love you to be able to see my body language and things like that. In VR, it actually takes it a step beyond the two-dimensional video feed. And you have a body, you have hands, you have gestures, you can have a, an even haptic physical interaction with other characters, but definitely have the immersive sense of presence, which lends itself to the significance whether it's theological, whether it's um, sensory, or whether it's um, psychological, that presence is significant to that moment in whatever ways. Um, so I've seen I've seen that sort of retained throughout the the VR conversation, and that uh, yeah I, I think one of the things that I recognize as I guess I don't know that I could really consider myself a pioneer uh, in it, in the truest sense, but we we do see that, you know, the, the commission that I have felt called to is, is take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, and, and that, that is done by way of forbearing and, and developing of relationship with, um, with presence, but also, you know, finding where the lost are and going to them. Um, and I just, I see that as the, the rest of the globe, yes, albeit a slow adoption, but, an adoption nonetheless, adopt sort of VR and this social VR gathering. And now um, with some of the biggest organizations involved being Facebook and Oculus, um, bringing the current global network of Facebook into that space so seamlessly with their Oculus Connect and with the new hardware, um, it, it actually brings, a, a, it really opens a big door for accessibility um, like never before to where those communities are growing rapidly, actually, in virtual reality um, metaverses. So going to those places and not having it be a substitute for um, me walking down the, the road to my in-person gathering on Sunday mornings and saying, yeah, that's, that's outdated. <laughs> We're not going to do that anymore. I'll stay in my living room and wave. Um, but actually saying, no, we, we do realize there are certain use cases where yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite apply and, and the true heart of in-person gathering remains. But for those use cases where that's impossible and for the use case where it can actually be just a tool for outreach um, and, and to be able to find those people wandering. And then I've had countless interactions with um, French people, Danish people, um, Muslim people, Australians, all that I walk up to and meet as I would on the street in a virtual metaverse and develop a conversation. So 
it's it's a street evangelism in in a meta meta sense as it were so it's where meta people are gathering yeah, that's right that's right <laughs> so i think yeah again it, it lends itself to to particular things well and to other things not so well and i'm excited to be able to explore what those things are and have that inform the work that i do you know one of the things that i've, I've experienced during this covid period is that i probably taught on multiple continents through zoom in ways in which you know, my initial remark when I greet people is, well, it's so nice to be with you. And I haven't had to go through any red lights or fly over any oceans <laughs> to get here. And so, um, and my wife, her reaction is think about some of these schools that are in third world countries for whom funds are limited. They don't have to pay for my coming and teaching in those classrooms. You know, the, the amount of expense that they've had to go through since they're already technologically set up to take the class is minimal. And, and so, so again, what you're getting is the strengths and weaknesses of various media, which allow you to do certain things in ways that can enhance the experience at one level. And even though it's not the same as my being in the room with those students, you know, in January and February, I'm going to be teaching students in Sri Lanka three hours a day from Dallas helping them wrestle with the use of the Old Testament and the New and thinking through those issues. And in the midst of doing that, um, I'll be doing something that would have been hard to conceive of my being able to do 10 years ago without a whole lot of logistical detail having to be expended in order to make it happen. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. And that's one of the things that I most appreciated working with you, Dr. Bach, as a collaborator on this book project, is your persistence in looking at, okay, this is a knife that cuts both directions. And early on in our project, you mentioned during our conversations the, um, the Andy Crouch book, Culture Making, and, and Crouch's central question there in his 2007 book, what does this new cultural form make possible? What does it make impossible? And we experience the losses in some of the things we miss in the way we used to do church, we also see some of the new doors opening up. And our, like our first instinct is to say, okay, is this good or is this bad? No, it's just different. We're going to have to be, we're going to have to continue to be learners in this new environment and put new pieces together. And you're wrestling and discovering what you can and can't do, what is and isn't effective, etc. I mean, it's like the opening illustration I talked about where churches are learning. It's probably not the most effective way to simply you know, reproduce the nine to five service and trying to do the same thing. We had the same lesson in the center. We have a thing we call leaderboard. First time we did it, we tried to exactly replicate what would happen in a room at breakfast over a multi-hour period. It took one time to figure out, well, that's not going to work. 
that, you know, no one's hanging around for that amount of time. To, and we had to make the adjustment immediately into what's going on to think about what's the more effective way to achieve the same kind of goal, but now in line with the medium that we're trying to use. And I think that's where the challenges, or at least some of the challenges in this area lie for us is, is thinking through what the, what the balance is between what this medium can do and what it should do and, and, and what's possible for doing and putting all that together and figuring that out. So if I can throw a question back to you, Dr. Bach, I'm super interested. So we're not going to figure out a single one-size-fits-all, here's how to do church in the virtual exactly. world. And even if we did, it would change by the time we got the book published. Okay. So how, how do we remain supple learning communities that can keep making progress in these innovations? I think you have to remain supple. I mean, that's a simple, that's a simple answer. It's like what I like to say about the great commandment. The great commandment is great because it's great. Okay, you have to be supple. You have to keep open mind. You have to be willing to learn to the, the, the experiences that you're having. You have to wrestle with and be self-critical about what is working and what isn't, you know, and be discerning in the midst of that. You have to be aware of what the impact is of what you're doing, things that you may or may not have thought about. What people don't know is that the four of us, um, besides Bill, are on and off in a discussion group that discusses these things on a regular basis. In the last meeting that we had, we were talking about the impact on the brain of spending long times in virtual reality. You know, now that's something a pastor's not going to be thinking about, but it certainly is something that people who use the medium and people who are thinking about the impact of the medium need to spend some time uh, wrestling with. And so, um, you know, so you're, again, you're dealing with a strength that also produces a weakness simultaneously. But that's not unusual either, that sometimes you're dealing in a situation which is dealing you two cards at once, one of which you like and one of which, eh, and so you have to uh, make the adjustments accordingly. That's the challenge of the area, and, and we're so new into it, and it's co so constantly changing all the time and what it's capable of that, that, that to simply – you know, fossilize where you are is not going to be the way to cope with what's going on. Well, I love that word supple. You know, it, it, it describes people that are open to the new. And, and that, to me, raises a question to ask you guys. What are some of the more innovative and experimental things that you've, you're seeing taking place among Christians? I mean, we're all familiar with, with people trying to reproduce their Sunday morning service, but I, I, I'm curious, way beyond that, surely there's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what Leo's doing and, and uh, virtual reality there. They're, they're, you must be aware of, of Christians that are being very, very creative with these new, uh, new technologies. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, certainly. Certainly am. And that's actually one of the most uh, incredible parts of the work that I'm doing is being able to network and be able to speak into those real and, and effective and current <laughs> businesses. Um, we've been seeing um, language education being done in VR. We've been seeing um, discipleship um, in sort of in, in a metaverse type sense where there are these metaverses that are public to any user. Um, where you can come in and you can generate your own private space. Um, VR is actually pretty hyper-encrypted um, to be able to be monitored by something like a government or um, other things like that. So 
there's there's a level a level of safety and privacy that comes with that. Um, so those spaces are being utilized in that way. I think you, you'd already mentioned sort of the traditional uh, church sermon gathering uh, ways that I've seen that somewhat um, modified and augmented for the virtual world is you have the ability in VR to digitally create and develop on the back end and render any visualization in any world that you'd like. So with that in mind, there are, are companies that are already moving toward augmented storylines that follow along biblical text and give augmented or in first person virtual reality experiences of biblical text and stories. So one of the biggest ways that I've seen it being used is for narrative strictly um, to be able to bring narrative into VR and have a, a first person immersive experience of that. We've seen it, seen it done with 360 video experiences where you play somewhat of a passive participant in the actual life of Jesus um, in sort of a, a passion of the Christ type um, uh, production. Um, we've seen it done where uh, kids in hospital beds um, are being brought uh, VR headsets and they're able to um, explore mystical lands and have conversations with sort of mentors of theirs without having to leave their bed because of their inability to. Uh, and they can run around quite literally in VR um, from that place. And, and so that, that's a relationship that's being developed. We've seen it being used for uh, educating, um, training uh, of missionaries who are going to go abroad into the field and somewhat forecast um, with 360 video and virtual rendering what that's going to look like for them, what types of challenges they're going to experience, the type of the place that they're going to, um, to not only sort of drive the buy-in of that individual, but also supplement the training that comes along stateside with that sort of thing um, before their deployment. So the list continues to go on and on. And, and that's just the list of sort of the missional applications. There are so many social applications of VR that are being developed, um, whether it be gaming or, or um, entertainment or whatever else, that we see through all of it, our presence, because it's a social application, uh, is powerful. And in, in my mind, it's, it's, it's my calling. It's necessary for our generation to be on the front side of the wave, um, to be able to ride with those in a part of the, the technological wave of virtual reality and, and be in that space with them, be familiar with that language, with the, with the different pieces of content. Um, but then also, uh, again, have local to the platform um, applications, virtual worlds and business models that are uh, gospel centric in nature so that, that, we, that we can resource them with. And so, yeah, there's the, the list goes on, as I said, and I could. <laughs> so, John, do you, do you think the seminary is about ready to uh, <laughs> bring on a, a Master of Arts in uh, digital gaming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we do have a few classes, but maybe not a full on degree yet. We're still working on that one. I love um, all those examples that Leo gave. You know, there's just so many wonderful opportunities to uh, to reach new people, to reach new people in new ways. And I think usually at this point, this is that one where you also have the negative side of things. You know, we we can kind of go down a list of bad uses of VR, right? And so I think that the the kind of conclusion that a lot of audiences get to is that there's good uses and bad uses. And so then the technology itself is just neutral. 
right? Um, and so you, usually what I, I feel like is, is helpful for us to kind of get to is to kind of talk about technology as not being um, neutral at all, but of, of being something good theologically that God has made us to make things from what he's made. That's part of God's original command in the garden. And, uh, you know, Adam, Adam creates language and then he creates clothing and God shows him how to make clothing better. And all throughout the biblical story, we could go through Noah and, and the Tower of Babel and Jesus being a tectone and all that stuff. We get to the end of the story and see that there's a city full of roads and trumpets and banners, all that stuff. Stuff. Um, so that's good, but then it's it's never ever neutral in any way. So that there's always some shaping power in our relationships and our communication and our body. You know, when we use a shovel, we get blisters on our hands. Um, all of these things. And so as we talk about it, we can talk about the good uses and the, and the bad uses we want to avoid and the good uses we want to do. But we also want to think about, you know, what is the system value and how does that play out in, in particular ways? Um, and then also to recognize that some of this we could talk about here in a, in a kind of conversation. But like I think Jonathan's pointed out, and to some degree, you have to learn it. You have to actually experiment with it to know some of these things. So it's kind of like when we would, if all of us were to say, what does a tuba sound like? We could talk about it, but you kind of have to experience it. It's a tacit knowledge that you have to be in there to do. And so as we talk about, you know, VR, we could maybe say some things like, um, you know, it kind of values taking over all of your senses. It's not just one. It's not just flat here. And so one of the cool things that does is in a church setting, um, it allows a certain kind of presence that you can't get on Zoom or you can't get on Facebook because afterward you can go off and have a side one-on-one -on -one conversation because of the way that the spatial reality in VR works. At the same time, that that full takeover means that the, the person who's most physically proximate to you can't experience it in the same way that when you're sharing a phone, it, it, that, that that happens. And it kind of can privatize and it can anonymize, like Leo said earlier, that that's a really that anonymous anonymousness is something very powerful for security and something that can also be be negative. So I think the, one of the ways I'd want to do is just immediately assume that this is technology itself is a good gift from God, but that it's never neutral. Then we start working through these these different things that it values and kind of work out how those might go in, in positive and negative directions. And I think uh, Leo and Jonathan and Daryl have kind of talked about some some of these, but um, it's really exciting to see what some of these ministries are doing at the same time. I think the possibility for Bible study also is pretty interesting. You know, it's said that uh, if you if you hear something, that's one thing. If you read it or experience it, that's another thing. What VR allows you to do, the image I like to use, is I would love to recreate being on a ship in Acts 27 with Paul as he's moving from, you know, Israel on his making his journey uh, on the way to to Rome. And what VR can do is give you a feel of what that experience could have been like, what it sounded like, what it looked like, the fear that it generated to be on that boat, et cetera. In an immersive, you know, the, the often word that you use with VR is it's an immersive experience. They're not talking about baptism. They're talking about something else. And so, you know, it, it's the surroundedness of what that experience is and the virtualness of what that experience is. I often use the example, the place where I saw VR that impacted me and told me, whoa, this could be interesting, is I, I, I went into a program that recreated an opera that allowed me to be on the stage with the actors. And I thought to myself, I've never heard the music with this kind of proximity before. I've never been able to see the expressions of the actors in the way that I can see it in this kind of a context. And all of a sudden, it opened up to me the way you could think about presenting the text of scripture as an experience that the telling of a story or the reading of the story or even the showing of a movie wouldn't recreate. 
And there's an intensity about that that is, as John has mentioned, both a strength and a weakness because the strength of the the strength of the experience is also related to the accuracy of the portrayal and and all the choices that have to be made to reproduce that experience, et cetera, with the appropriate background and understanding of what that would take. And and that's just one sample of the kind of thing that you're talking about. But that touches directly on our experience with the Bible and the potential that exists there. Well, that Bill, does I- the question, a person can have an intense experience, and then the question is, does that change them? Does that transform them from a, in a spiritual way? You know, are they going to live a, a, a more renewed life, a more Christ-like life as a result of that experience? We certainly know people that have gone to, you know, worship concerts and, and other intense forms of, of experience, and then pretty much live the same way that everybody else is living. And, and you wonder, has, has the Holy Spirit really affected any change here, or did they just feel an intensity? And another person has the same experience at the same concert. There you and ends go. Up being totally exactly. Changed. Yes. I, you know, I so, you. You know, so I, again, that's the challenge. That's the challenge of it. What you're doing is you're creating an opportunity. And the opportunity is an opportunity to step towards God or just have another experience. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, you know, what you do with it, that's a whole other layer of the, of the conversation. Bill, can I comment yes. on here? So um, you're absolutely right. You know, VR as a medium has higher resolution and allows surround, you know, experiences. And that by itself doesn't create spiritual transformation. It doesn't matter if we're looking at a 4K screen or an 8K screen, that doesn't create spiritual transformation. I think the unique opportunity with VR is the social context that it can facilitate, and then we start to get closer to what could be spiritually transformational. Can I give a quick top five list? On, if I were if I were speaking to a pastor and I, and we had already established this principle that the medium allows certain things doesn't allow certain things I'd say hey try five things at your church one is try prayer networks um, uh, a sociologist of religion tipped me off that in VR participation is to be so to exist in VR is to participate it's king and that fully translates to the experience of community prayer Get, uh, get people praying together and get them experiencing this, com- this communal dialogue with God together. The cool thing about VR prayer, too, is it doesn't matter if your you know, internet cuts out, you can still speak with God. Two, I would say um, one of the most interesting phenomenon that I'm interested in for teaching purposes is the idea of community theater. So you can gather in VR people to act out a Bible story together, and that starts to really get to become a very cool experience because people are actually living the story in some way and they they literally live it together and that creates a social dynamic and possibility for exchange that I think could be very fruitful in the future. Try preaching your sermon and act out a Bible story together. Uh, three, developmental relationships work really well in VR. So that's coaching, that's meeting with somebody like for a mentorship appointment on a Friday afternoon routinely. Those are surprisingly, they translate surprisingly well to VR or online communication like we're doing. Four, 
Um, try leaning into volunteer networks with, um, with VR. VR allows very complex communication, and a lot of the type of work that our institutions do is too technical or too complicated to decentralize. That's why we've had office buildings and so on. VR starts to allow such complicated communication that you can dis decentralize many workflows in and seed them out into volunteer networks. So I anticipate like lots of stuff could happen in volunteer networks in the next decade or two. And on number five, go for it. Fifthly, sorry, uh, VR tours. Go on a tour of a, a, ge a real geographical space in VR. Love it. Love it. Very practical and a great way to uh, finish up our time here. Prayer, theater, uh, coaching, mentoring, volunteer networks, and tours. That's outstanding. Thank you. I want to thank all of you gentlemen for being with us today, and I want to thank you for joining us on the this issue of the Table Podcast. Uh, if you've enjoyed this session, uh, be sure and subscribe to the podcast on your platform, uh, and, and that way you'll know about the other episodes that are coming up. For the Table Podcast, I'm Bill Hendricks. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.